Amen. So we're going to be in Acts 23. And I was um, wanted to give you guys a little bit of, uh, we've been, you know, going through the book of Acts um, when it's my Sunday night to teach, but I wanted to kind of bring you up to date as to what's been, you know, from Paul or Saul's conversion up to where we are today, just quickly, just so you get an idea of, you know, the progression in Paul's life. And, you know, he gets saved in 35 A.D., and we're all the way up to 57 A.D. in in Acts 23. So he's been around for quite a while. And if there's anything that you can take away from tonight... It is that you can rest assured that God is faithful, that God has a plan for your life, and when things get difficult, he doesn't bail on us. I mean, he's in it 110% right with us. And it's so obvious when you look at Paul's life, as you see him grow in Christ, you see God's hand all over his life, God's faithfulness. So quickly, you know, in Acts 9, he gets saved, and that's in 35 AD. Then he heads out into Arabia for at least three years, and, you know, there he meets with the Lord and gets discipled out in the desert. Shows a little bit of his character. I mean, he could have um, got saved and ran right to Jerusalem, but, um, you know, that, that, that wasn't Paul, or at this point, Saul. Uh, He ends up back in his hometown of Tarsus at the end of Acts 9. Barnabas is sent to uh, Antioch to see what's going on in Acts 11, you know, with um, the church growing there, and he goes to Antioch, and then he makes a a detour to Tarsus, and he gets Paul, or Saul, and brings him to Antioch with him. And um, Saul and Barnabas go on a missionary, a, a mission of mercy, to Jerusalem, and they end up coming back to Antioch with Mark. So that brings us to like 45 AD. And then, of course, Paul's first missionary journey was AD 46 through 48, and that's Acts 13, uh, verse 4 through Acts 14, 28. Then Paul is is, is a part of the Jerusalem council, Then there's the second missionary journey and the third missionary journey, which ends in chapter 21, verse 17, kind of puts us, you know, where we are, close to where we are today in Acts 23, where Paul, you know, he finally gets to Jerusalem, gets to meet with James and the elders, and everything's going great. James and the elders come up with this idea to... um, kind of break the news to the Jewish community that, that Paul is in town and to try to kind of soften the blow and, you know, really just a, like, a, to a, a, like a peace offering, if you will, where um, they encourage Paul to uh, go through this, um, this vow with these four men. And, um, you know, sometimes we, you know, when they say when you make plans, God laughs. So they have this idea to get things to work, but it, you know, it doesn't work out. Paul's in the temple with Trimophius, but obviously Trimophius is not in the temple. But um, the Jews from Ephesus come to town and they see uh, Paul in the temple or see him with Trimophius and they kind of equate the fact that if 
Paul went into the temple. They must have brought him with him. So there's a, there's a big riot. Um, the Roman soldiers intervene. Paul gets to speak to the crowd again. He mentions the Gentiles. Things don't go good again. So here he is in Acts 23. And we're going to, we'll, um, we'll start in verse 30 of Acts 22, just to kind of get an idea of what's going on. And, and like I said, this is just a beautiful picture of the faithfulness of God. And, you know, looking at, you know, looking at Paul and, you know, this, some of the, the events of this chapter really could be a, a considered one of the low points in Paul's ministry, you know, at least for him, you know, thinking-wise in his relationship with the Lord and what's going on uh, in his life. But let's read, um, let's read verse 30 of chapter 22. It says, The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, and um, the he there is Lysias, Claudius Lysias. He's the, he's the, the overseer of the Roman occupation in Jerusalem. And he's kind of been back and forth with this whole thing with Paul and the mob and kind of saving Paul from getting torn apart a few times. So, um, but he needs, to, um, he needs to find out what the problem really is. And he's having a hard time finding out what, what the Jew, what the, you know, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership are accusing Paul of. So it says he releases him from his, his bonds and he uh, commands the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before him. So this is really an awkward situation for Lysias because Paul is his responsibility. At the end of chapter 22, he just finds out that Paul is a Roman citizen. Oops. I mean, he had him already bound and they were getting ready to scourge him. And, you know, and, and that's, you know, Paul is just so... It's just an awesome guy. You know, they get, uh, he waits all this time. Now they're getting ready to scourge him. And then he says, oh, by the way, um, are you supposed to do that to a Roman citizen? So he, um, he just, um, he, he, knows when to, he knows when to hold him and he knows when to, to play him. Because he, you know, that was perfect timing. And he, um, now um, Lysias has, you know, compounded the problem because he's bound a Roman citizen <clears throat> he has no idea why the Jews want to tear him apart. So he's, he, he calls the, the council together. He gets Paul um, before them again. And the last time Paul spoke, he spoke in Hebrew. And it was kind of uh, taking Lysias. Uh, he had to take a step back because he really couldn't un- he doesn't, didn't understand what Paul was saying. So I think this time when he brought Paul before the council... I think it doesn't say it, but I, I think if I were he, I would have asked Paul to speak Greek so he could understand what was going on because, you know, it, it you know, didn't make much sense to him before. So it's a, it's a real critical time for Lysias and for Paul. He's, um, he's just staying faithful to what God's called him to do. You know, he knew he was supposed to be in Jerusalem, um, you know, Acts 19, I mean, 20, 21, you know, people are telling him, don't go, don't go, don't go. And Paul's saying, oh, I got to go, I got to go. And, you know, now he's there and he's in the middle of it. So uh, very interesting. So let's pick up in verse, um, verse 1 of chapter 23. It says, then Paul, looking earnestly 
at the council said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So Paul is, um, he's trying, he's, he's going to try the personal approach. He's, you know, he, he, call, he talks to them as men and brethren, you know, trying to just identify himself as a Jew, identify with the, the men, this countrymen that were there. You know, and keep in mind, you know, Paul was in, was in the Sanhedrin. You know, so some of these folks that are, he's standing before um, could know Paul. Paul could know them. You know, it's been, it's been uh, 22 years since he got saved, but, um, you know, you don't know. So, you know, he's, he's trying to, um, he, he's just trying to um, ease his way into uh, the conversation with these guys. So uh, the Greek word there for lived means to live as a citizen. And that's important when you hear Paul say that he has a, a you know, that he has a clear conscience or a good conscience. And that word, um, it gives us our English word politics. Okay, and Paul affirmed that he was a loyal Jew who had lived as a good Jewish citizen and hadn't broke the law. You know, Paul is, you know, has told us throughout some of his writings, you know, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, you know, as far as, as, far as obeying the law, just being, you know, he, he was it. You know, he was um, really the epitome of, you know, a Pharisee. So, you know, he's, um, he's just trying to reaffirm that. Um, he says he's lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So Paul's conscience didn't condemn him, even though the Jews had condemned him. And that word conscience is an interesting word, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it, it, does, um, it does deserve a little bit of um, comment. It's one of Paul's favorite words. Um, he uses it a couple times here in Acts, but he uses it 21 times in uh, the rest of his writings. And the word means to know with, to know together. Okay, so the conscience is the inner judge or witness that approves when we do right and disapproves when we do wrong. So Romans 2.15, Paul tells us, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. So this is important. The conscience, the conscience doesn't set or make the standard. Okay, it only applies the standard that's already there. Okay, the, the standard that the, the person already has, whether it's good or bad or right or wrong. So it's like this. The conscience of a thief would bother him if he told the truth about his fellow crooks. Right? just as much as a Christian's conscience would convict him if he told a lie about his friends. So this, this um, analogy really kind of made it really clear for me. Um, the conscience can be compared to as a window that lets light in. Okay, so God's law is the light, or God's word is the light. And the cleaner the window is, the more the light shines in. All right? And as the window gets dirty, the light gets dimmer, and finally the light becomes darkness. So you can see, um, you know, when you have a clear conscience, 
that window is clear and God's, God's word is able to shine through. And you, know, and you hear that saying, let your conscience uh, be your guide. And I would say if the word of God is, is, is the, the resource that the conscience is going to use to be your guide, then you're in good shape. Right, because that—that's you know—that's the Lord's light shining through that that clear window. But a good conscience or a pure conscience is one that lets in God's light, so that we are properly convicted if we do wrong, and encouraged if we do right. And in First Timothy three, in verses eight and nine, it says, "Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine." not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. A pure conscience. Now, on the other hand, um, you can have a defiled conscience. And that's one that has sinned against so much that, you know, it's, it's, no, it's, been, it's no longer dependable. Just a habitual sin. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 says, however, there is not, there is not in everyone that knowledge for some with consciousness of the idol until now eat as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So we can have a clear conscience or a defiled conscience. So question, Paul, Paul had persecuted the church and even caused innocent people to die. So how could he claim to have a good conscience? It's an interesting question. See, but Paul lived up to the light that he had. Okay? And that's all, and that's all that, you know, required was, um, that, that was all that was required of his conscience, to live up to what he knew was right at that time. But we can't stop there because we know that, there was a change in Paul's life, right? So even then, in that particular instance, before he got saved, the way he lived his life and the standard that, um, that he was using uh, to have a clear conscience, he was fine with it. In his mind, he was doing everything according to plan. Once he got saved, I mean, it was a whole different story. After Paul became a Christian and the bright light of God's glory shone into his heart, all right, Paul then saw things differently and realized um, that he really was a, a, the chief of sinners. He saw the reality of what he was using as that standard and saw that how flawed that it was. And he realized that once he accepted Christ, all of a sudden the word of God, the glory of God, became that standard in his life. And he probably still could say that he had a clear conscience because I really believe the way Paul lived out his life. He wasn't perfect. And, you know, I'm not talking about perfection. Um, you know, it's about um, keeping um, short accounts of the sin in our life, right? You know, when we sin, we repent and we move forward. You know, we don't, don't make excuses. You know, don't try to, to work around it or, you know, anything like that. Just be real with the Lord when it comes to that. So it says in verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Ananias is the high priest, and he is infuriated by what Paul said, that he lived in all good conscience. 
And, you know, think of Ananias is looking at Paul as like this reprobate now. He's jumped ship on the Jewish religion, right? Now he's out there preaching Jesus and him crucified. And for him to hear him say that he's lived in good conscience all this time, it, it, it irritated him. So what's he do? Um, he lives up to his character and has somebody close by Paul to slap him. And, um, of course, it, it, that was true, really against the law, right? The high priest would be expected to show honesty and fairness, if not compassion and concern. In uh, Leviticus 19, um, Deuteronomy, there's um, a whole host of Old Testament verses that talk about the conduct of the high priest. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit, let's read a few more verses and we'll talk a little bit more about Ananias. So in verses 3 and 4, it says, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Did you revile God's high priest? And in verse 5, then says, Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So, you know, Paul responds with what, you know, appears to be justified anger. Um, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit about if he, um, if he really knew who he was talking to, if he recognized that it was the high priest. You know, he, Paul doesn't apologize, but he, he shows respect for the office, but not for the man. And Ananias was, I mean, he was corrupt. I mean, he was a corrupt guy, uh, probably one of the most corrupt men ever to be named high priest. Okay, he stole tithes from other priests, uh, did all he could to increase his authority. He was known as a brutal man who cared more for Rome's favor than for Israel's welfare. And just a little side note here, talking about striving for the favor of Rome. You know, striving for the approval of man is, um, is a very unhealthy thing. You know, as believers, you know, we want to strive for God's approval, right? We, we, you know, we want to live our lives right before God. That's what's important. Um, you know, and, and sure, you want to be respected by your peers. Sure, that, that's important as well. But, you know, striving to, be, to gain man's approval is just not a good thing. And you, you saw the way it affected Ananias. He just compromised. His whole ministry was compromised. Instead of putting... Israel first, which that was the call, that was his call as the high priest. He was more concerned about his own needs. And, you know, we see it in the world today. You know, and unfortunately, and I'll just leave it at this, the church gets, the church is affected by this. When the church tries to appease man or to gain man's approval, it, it never takes, it never takes the church to a good place. You know, we're called to stand on the word of God. That, that's, you know, that's, our, um, that's our guide. That's, um, you know, that's our rule of, and I, I think this might even apply. This is like our rule of law, right? I mean, we don't deviate from the word of God, right? If, 
and, and we don't certainly don't want to offend anybody or be mean on purpose or rude. You know, we're called to speak the truth in love, but we don't want to deviate from that. So sometimes, you know, we might say things that might sound offensive or might hurt somebody's feelings, but if it's the truth of God's word, don't compromise on that. You know, speak the truth in love. You know, we're not, you know, we're not called to start fights. We're not called to, you know, to purposely cause division. You know, we're here to be a light. You know, and if you, you look at the last two chapters of, in Acts, 21, 20, 21, 22, you know, Paul is not out to make an enemy of the Jewish community. Paul loves the Jewish community right to the very depths of his heart. And Paul knows that the best thing for them is to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, did they appreciate that? No. But he shared it in love. Right? He shared it in love. Even, you know, multiple beatings and, you know, little mini riots. But he, it, didn't, it didn't dissuade him from speaking the truth in love because he knew that's what they needed to hear. So, you know, we don't want to try to win the approval of the world because, you know, this world is not our home. You know, we're just passing through. And, you know, our, um, our Christian view is never going to line up with the world view that's out there. It's just not going to happen. So, like Paul, you know, and, and, and I'm saying speak the truth in love, and here's Paul calling this, you know, the high priest a white wall, right? right? You, know, and, you know, and they used to put that coating of white paint over the, the wall to cover up the dirt, you know, but that's all it was for, you know. So he's kind of insulting, you know, the high priest. So, you know, basically calling him a hypocrite. So that's what he, he gets, you know, he's in a little bit of hot water, right? But, you know, Paul did speak prophetically about Ananias because God indeed um, took, you know, I mean, justice was served. Um, Ananias was uh, killed by uh, Roman soldiers in AD 66. Well, actually by Jewish guerrillas who found him hiding in the aqueduct in Herod's palace. So, you know, he, um, you know, goes around, comes around. You know, there was justice um, for Ananias. So it was, he was a, it was a disgraceful death for a despicable man. It truly was. So back to verse 5, it says, Then Paul said, I didn't know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So, a lot of people, there's some different views on this about, um, you know, why would Paul talk to the high priest this way? So I'm going to share a few of them. You might have your own thoughts as to why um, he spoke that way. Um, one of the obvious reasons why would be that, you know, maybe he didn't know who was the high priest. You know, Paul had been away from, um, you know, Judaism for a while, you know, maybe he didn't know he was the high priest. Uh, it was an informal meeting, so another thought could have been maybe the high priest wasn't wearing the traditional garments and sitting in that traditional spot where the high priest would sit during a council meeting. You know, Paul is quoting Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, so it would indicate that 
Paul may not have known that this was the high priest who ordered him to be smitten. So there's, you know, some different reasons why Paul might have said that. And, you know, once again, you know, Paul showed respect for the office, but not for the man who held the office. And, you know, that's a, you know, that's a, a good approach to have. You know, there's, sure, there's a lot of things. There's people today in um, politics that we might not agree with, but, you know, they hold an office that needs respect, that, that there is respect due to that position, right? The President of the United States, you might not agree with them, but you have to respect the office of the presidency. You know, pray for them. That's what we're, we're encouraged to do, is to pray for those folks that are in, in authority. You know, spend less time complaining about them and spend more time praying for them. Because as much as we disagree, um, you know, if they were to die without Christ, they're going to just drop down into hell. You know, and I think it was um, when Carl Kirby was here, he was talking about Penn Gillette and this other guy. They do a magic act in Las Vegas. And they're, they're atheists big time. But um, Penn Gillette, this guy got into his dressing room, a Christian, and started sharing the gospel with him, gave him a Bible, shared the Lord with him. And, you know, he said, you know, he said that, you know, I, I didn't agree with what he said, but I appreciated his love for me. And he ended up saying, and this is kind of like a quote that, you know, as a Christian, you kind of take it, and it's like, wow. So Pendulette said to Christians, he's addressing Christians, he said, how much do you have to hate somebody to not share the gospel with them? And he's saying, if, if the gospel is true and what that guy was telling him was true, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them and share the gospel? That's a pretty powerful statement. You know, and I know that there's some things going on politically that we don't approve of or we don't like or don't, we don't agree with. But you know what? We still got to pray. We still got to pray that, that, that these, you know, that these folks get saved. You know, it's, it's just it's what we're called to do. So let's move on. And let's, let's see, 6 through 11. Let's read 6 through 11. So Paul's going to change his approach now. Okay, he was trying to appeal, um, you know, on a, a, a level of, hey, brethren, you know, let's, let's talk about this kind of thing. And now he, he's going to change gears a little bit, shift gears. And uh, I'm going to ask you guys a question after we read these verses. So verses 6 through 11. It says, but when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out, in the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. But the Pharisees confessed both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisee, the Pharisee party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, 
But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. <coughs> now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, this is Lysias again, now there's another semi-riot, fearing least Paul might be pulled <laughs> to pieces by them. That's interesting, right? I mean, think about that. I mean, it's getting so out of hand now. Lysias is concerned that they're going to pull Paul apart. You know, I mean, this is like, uh, this is getting out of hand. And keep in mind, Lysias is the guy who's responsible for Paul. Many think, what, you know, if, if he were to lose Paul or Paul were to get killed, it could be his life. So he's, he's, he's concerned. So the commander, Lysias, um, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So, you know, having, you know, seemingly failed with his personal approach, now Paul is going to use a doctrinal approach. So, what he did is he declared that the real issue was his faith in the doctrine of the resurrection a doctrine over which the Pharisees and the Sadducees violently disagreed. So, and you can see that there's wisdom in what Paul is doing. Okay? And this isn't just, he's not just talking about any resurrection. Okay? He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, okay? Because we know this because when Paul had the opportunity to share prior to this, it all came down to Jesus and the resurrection in the gospel. And if they would have given him a chance here, he would have, he would have got to that. I think, I'm pretty sure he would have. He was doing it in the past, and we're going to see when we move on into the next couple chapters, he's going to do it then. So it's safe to say that he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So things get out of hand. You know, Lysias comes down and rescues him for a second time. So Here's the question. Was Paul playing politics when he took this approach, or was he being led by the Spirit? And it's kind of a rhetorical kind of question. I, I would say he's being led by the Spirit, right? Think about it. I mean, here's a guy that just, you know, and it's read the epistles and just Read Paul. Read you know the accounts of Paul throughout the book of Acts. I mean, Paul. You know, he was you know really just in tune with what the Lord was doing. I mean, it's not any different than us. I mean, if you've read First Corinthians and you've read about the gifts, you know that the gifts you can operate in the gifts. You know, if you need a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, God imparts that to us, right? I mean, so it wouldn't surprise me if when Paul realized after he got slapped by the high priest or somebody, you know, at the command of the high priest, that, you know, the Lord could have spoke to his heart and said, you know, Paul, this isn't going to go the way you might have thought. So um, let's, let's shift gears and, um, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's see if we can get the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees going at it, and uh, we'll just take our chances with the, Roman, with the Roman soldiers, and we'll just see what we can do after that. And, and, real, and it's really the truth, because 
he could have realistically, if the Sadducees and the council would have gotten their way, um, I'm not 100% sure if the, the Asian group of, the, the group of Jews, Jewish folks that came from Ephesus, if they were still there. I mean, it could have turned into a kangaroo court and Paul could have really ended up losing and, and ended up getting stoned. So the wisest thing to do was to end the hearing as soon as possible and trust God to use the Roman legions to protect him from the Jews. And basically, that's what happens. We're going to see as we'll see that as we as we read on. And then uh, another consideration was Paul was absolutely right when he said that the real issue was the resurrection. So two things there that um, you know I really believe that you know Paul was just being sensitive to the guidance and the leading of the Holy Spirit, being faithful, um, just speaking the truth. And, um, you know, Paul is um, just being faithful to what God's called him to do. So, and I guess what is sad about this whole account, this is another opportunity that the council had to hear the truth and to respond to it, to get saved. You know, to hear the gospel, to hear the word of God, but yet, um, you know, they still rejected it. And, you know, I was, and this is um, it's just something that came to my mind when I was reading through this the other day. You know, it's, it's so, for, for these, um, for this council, for, you know, these, these guys were hardline, <clears throat> you know, councilmen, you know, firmly entrenched in Judaism. But, you know, it, it just seems like Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 um, you know, just came to mind. I'll just read it for you guys. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, God doesn't think the way we do, right? You know, his ways aren't our ways. You know, we got to be open to what God is doing, you know, these guys have had opportunities. I'm not, I know that there's a set amount of times, that I think it's either six or seven times through the book of Acts, where they were presented with the truth and rejected it. And it's sad. But, you know, it's, it's the way it is. You know, they're thinking one way, um, you know, but guess what? God's thoughts aren't like their thoughts. You know, they missed out on another opportunity um, to get right with the Lord. So... Verse 11 is really an awesome verse. It says, but the following night, so Paul is back in custody. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You know, Jesus showing up again, encouraging Paul, comforting Paul, and, you know, this is, um, this could, you know, be one of the low points in Paul's life and in his ministry. You know, there was a whole lot of talk about going to Jerusalem and getting there. And, you know, Agabus told him not to go, told him really what was going to happen when he got there. Um, you know, and here's Paul now, you know, trying to, to make a difference and, 
It seems like every opportunity he has to share gets shut down. You know, people are they're just trying to, they're trying to kill him. And here he is now back in custody again, sitting alone in a cell. But what happens, the Lord shows up. And, you know, I don't know, um, you know, what's going on in your lives. But you know what? You know, we all, we, you know, we're, we've all been there. Or we might eventually be there to a place where everything looks kind of bleak. And we think, oh, man, you know, how could, you know, you just, you've been there, right? You just, sometimes, I mean, you're at a place and you just don't even know what to say. You don't even know what to do. Sometimes you don't even know what to pray. But all of a sudden, the Lord just says, I'm here. I haven't gone anywhere. You know, and he's telling Paul, Paul, be of good cheer. You know, be of good cheer. For, you know, you were, gonna, you were supposed to be here in Jerusalem and testify. And you know what? You did it. And now, you know what? You're going to go bear witness at Rome as well. And we know that Paul had already talked a little bit about wanting to go uh, to Rome. So it's a message of comfort and encouragement. You know, and those are the messages, you know, that God gives us when, you know, we feel like we're at the end of our rope or we just don't know what to do. We're in a situation where we've been praying and it doesn't seem like there's going to be an answer or a good result, but God is there. You know, God is there. The Lord encouraged Paul not to be afraid. And, you know, the, the obvious question is why? Well, because he was under the sovereign care of God. You know, when we're, when we're told not to be afraid, to just keep the faith, keep trusting the Lord, you know, the reason we, we can encourage each other with that is because we serve a sovereign God who cares. We serve a God who is faithful. I mean, faithful. You know, never, I mean, God has never, ever been unfaithful. You know, and so we need to be encouraged. We need to be encouraged about that. You know, Paul's chains would glorify God in ways that would have been impossible without them. You know, if Paul doesn't, and, you know, I don't want I don't want to, you know, be a spoiler of what's coming up. But, you know, Paul, you know, is going to end up going to Rome. And on the way there, and when he gets there, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting journey to get there. But the influence and the things that happen in his life up to that point, you know, read ahead, of course. But, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, he's going to be stranded on Malta and lead the whole island pretty much to the Lord. I, I mean... Think of the things that had to happen. He had to get to Rome, but everything that happened on the way, the Lord used that. Even before the ship gets wrecked, you know, Paul goes from being a passenger to being the captain of the ship pretty much because they see his relationship with the Lord. They see the things that he's saying come in the past. You know, God is going to do some amazing things through Paul. You know, and it was also that in that cell, it was a message of commendation. The Lord didn't rebuke Paul for going to Jerusalem. He told him, hey, you know, you were right in step. That's where you were supposed to be. And just like you were a witness here, you're going to be a witness for me in Rome. So Paul's excited. And, you know, the Lord was pleased with Paul's testimony. And that's really all that counts. And this is important. 
and it's something we need to remember. The outcome is God's responsibility. Okay? If God calls you to do something, God is working something into your life, don't worry about all the particulars. Paul, wasn't, Paul was just faithful to what he knew God told him to do. Go to Jerusalem. All right, I'm going to Jerusalem. And on the way there, people are telling him, maybe you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Paul's saying, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. Because he knew that God wanted him to be there. You know, God, God will take care of all of the details. God will take care of all the particulars. We just need to go. We just need to take that step of faith. Paul took the step of faith, and things happened. And, la- and lastly, it was a message of confidence. And, and Paul would go to Rome, and, you know, that was his desire that he wanted to, and God is going to give it to him. So in all of this, the Lord was, was with him and fulfilling his plan to get his faithful servant to Rome. And, you know, guys, obviously the application I mentioned God meets us in our lowest moments in life. He's there with us. When we think we failed him, and you know, there might be times that, you know, we have failed him. But God isn't, you know, putting his finger in your face and rebuking you. He's loving you through it. You know, think about the prodigal son. You know, when he came back home. Man, he, he just loved him, flourished, you know, gave him the best that he had. He had a, a big feast. You know, you know it's, it's too bad we're limited by language to try to describe how great God is and how faithful and awesome he is. Um, it's unfortunate, but we're, I really believe we're constrained by language to really express just the awesomeness of God. So... Well, we're running out of time. Let's read, um, let's read up to verse 15. So Paul is, just has this word from the Lord. So there's that encouragement for him. You would think that things would kind of quiet down, but that not, that's really not the case. So we're going to see that the Jews now are going to plot against Paul. And, you know, I want to try to get to... Um, yeah, right, we're gonna let's just I'll just read and comment as we go. And when it was day, some of the Jews band together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Okay. Now there were more than forty who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath, and we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Hmm. And now therefore now, now you, therefore, go together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So let's, let's read a little further. So they're gonna, they were going to kill Paul, right? The, the, they got this, these 40-some guys that are vowed to kill Paul. You know, God just told Paul not to worry. You know, he was blessed that, you know, you did, you know, you, you, you came to Jerusalem and now you're going to go to Rome. So these guys didn't get the memo that Paul is going to Rome, right? So, but once again, though, this is God's faithfulness. This is God's hand in Paul's life. 
So coincidentally, in verse 16, so when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, and, and think about it, Paul's already Paul's got a relationship with these guys now. He's been in and out of the mob, you know, trying to get, you know, to, to speak with the, the you know, this, the council. There, you know, there's a riot, you know. So he's back and forth with these guys. So he um, he calls one of the centurions to him and he said, "Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him." So he took him and brought him to the commander and said. Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand and went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him to tell no one, um, you have revealed these things to me. So Paul is in custody. The Lord appears to him. And really encourages him, comforts him. So Paul's excited. The next thing you know, they, take the, they make this plot to, to kill Paul. The plot gets exposed. And now, um, we're going to stop here, but read ahead because it really gets interesting. Because God not only provides by having uh, Paul's nephew overhear this, but now they're, because of this, they're going to take Paul and bring him down to Felix in Caesarea. And it's interesting because they're going to they're gonna take 470 Roman soldiers to see Paul, to make sure Paul gets to Caesarea safely. Now, the Lord is amazing. I mean, think about that. First, he exposes the plot. And then he works it in Lysias' heart. And granted, a lot of it is selfish because, you know, Lysias, you know, the commander, um, he has a lot at stake too. If Paul were to get killed under his watch, like I said, it's not a good thing for him. But it's just God is working behind the scenes. 470 Roman soldiers, think about that. Horsemen, footmen, I, I mean, it's unbelievable, but that's God. God will do whatever it takes for us. You know, if God is called, you know, if, if God might be nudging you to do something, I want to encourage you tonight, go for it. Go for it. Trust God. Just put it out there. Just put it out there. God is not, you know, God is not going to let anything bad happen. I mean, and this stuff here, the, it's in 1 Corinthians. I'm pretty sure if I, I remember right. But all of these things that were written beforehand were written for our learning and our admonition. This stuff isn't here just because it's a cool story to see how Paul gets spared from, you know, being ambushed. You know, this is, this is a book that just over and over and over and over and over again points to the faithfulness of God. 
the love of God, God's concern for us, his love for us, our salvation, his commitment to it. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing, amazing love story about our Heavenly Father. So I just want to encourage you guys. If, you know, God's nudging you, trust him, trust him. If you're in a position where you kind of feel like you're over your head and things and you're just not sure what's what, just seek the Lord. You know, God will be there. God is that God of comfort. He is that encouragement that we need. All right, so we'll finish the chapter and move on into 24 um, the next time we get together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And, and Lord, we, um, you know, just... They should make movies, Lord, about this stuff. It's just amazing. And, I, you know, it's just exciting to see your hand, Lord, behind the scenes. And, you know, it just becomes so real, so alive uh, when we read it. And, uh, God, we're so thankful for that, that we get a glimpse into your heart, that we get a glimpse uh, into just seeing how um, faithful and trustworthy you are. And, um, Lord, we thank you for that. And God, we thank you for preserving your word. You know, God, we, we have a, a book that we could look into your heart by reading that book and just studying it. So we thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that you would, if there's anybody here tonight that is between a rock and a hard place, so to speak, that they would just reach out to you and um, just trust you to get them through whatever it is that they're facing. And Lord, for those of us that feel like you're, you're nudging us to, in a certain direction to do something, I pray, God, that we would take that step of faith and just allow you to prepare the way and prepare our hearts for it. Uh, we pray, God, that you'd get us all home safely, uh, Lord, and should you tarry and uh, we get tomorrow, I pray that um, we would just live it out for you. Uh, so we praise you and we thank you for all these things, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.